Hello, and welcome back to the five-day reading plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and we're in week 30 of our reading plan, and this week I'll guide us through some of the things that we read together in the past few days. Always remember you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description to this podcast, or you can look it up at fivedaybiblereading.com. In this week's reading, 2 Kings 7-12, through 2 Chronicles 21-24, through 24, the minor prophet Joel, Psalm 49, 50, and 131, and Matthew 6 through 10. 2 Kings 9 kind of rewinds and takes us back to Ahab and Jezebel's ruthless actions against Naboth several chapters ago. You might remember that. He wanted the land that Naboth owned, but he couldn't have it. So Jezebel says, well, we'll just make sure we take care of this guy. In what will be the northern kingdom's only good reign here, though, Jehu is used by God to avenge this evil act of Ahab and Jezebel. And then as the chapter ends, we see Jezebel's violent and humiliating death as prophesied by Elijah in 1 Kings 21. Elijah would not live to see this promise fulfilled, nor will we live to see some of the promises we are given. So I like to think of this as our assurance that even if we die before we see promises fulfilled, the Lord will be true to all he has said. He is faithful. He will not fail. Jehu will then go on to rid the land of all of Ahab's family. He will also punish the worshipers of Baal. So he ends up being a mostly good king, the, the only good king the northern of kingdom of Israel will ever know. But as much as he was divinely appointed to carry out much-deserved justice, we see in the end it says that he, quote, was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins that Jeroboam caused Israel to commit. Jehu did what God had commissioned him to do, but sadly his heart was not aligned with God's righteousness. Kind of a scary thought, isn't it? And just a reminder to check our own hearts. In 2 Kings 11 and 2 Chronicles 23, we see a real piece of work in Athaliah, the mother of Azahiah, who took it upon herself to rule after he was taken out. While Jehoiada, the priest, and others seek to return the temple to what it was meant to be and the throne to what it was meant to be through Joash, Athaliah throws a fit and screams, Treason! Treason! just before she's put to death. What an interesting perspective, is it not? Here's a woman who usurped the throne not meant for her, but who also had no intention of following God's ways, and she is the one who shouts treason. There are many times in history, including the times we now live in, where unrighteous people accuse the righteous of being the bad guys. I'm amazed today by how often Christians and the church are charged with being what is wrong with society. And, and sure, we aren't perfect, and we certainly have our own issues. But as we saw in 1 Timothy, the church is the world's only pillar and support of the truth. So just as Jehoiada and those around him sought to re restore the temple to its rightful place, so we should be about proclaiming the truth to a lost and broken world. We may be accused of being the bad guys, but that should not undermine our resolve. Oh, that we would have the courage of Jehoiada when persecuted for doing what is right in times that seem so backwards and confusing. So after Athaliah is taken out, Joash takes the throne as he was meant to do. Second Chronicles 24 shows us how this man started well but ended poorly. The turning point seems to be the death of Jehoiada, his guiding priest, who, is, who had been sort of his moral compass. 
Once Jehoiada died, Joash began to listen to other voices who pulled him off the path of righteousness. He even had Jehoiada's son assassinated when his son confronted him. I see a couple of lessons here. One, it is a huge thing for us to surround ourselves with people who walk with God, especially mentors who can light the way for us, help us to see our blind spots, and warn us of our pitfalls. And secondly, it is important for our, our faith to be our own. Should we lose our spiritual guides in some way, maybe they, via their death or maybe a geographical separation, maybe even because they've fallen spiritually, we must have a solid enough foundation that we can continue on the right path. <clears throat> we must ensure that our affections for God are growing to such a degree that nothing this world can throw at us will thrust us off the path to God and His glory. <clears throat> Joash's story reminds me somewhat of the great fighter Mike Tyson. If you're like me, you watched Mike Tyson at his peak, and you wondered if anyone would ever defeat him. You were, like me, probably sure that he would replace Muhammad Ali as the greatest. He just looked absolutely invincible. In fact, many of his opponents would go down in the early rounds, if not the first round. But then Tyson's mentor and father figure died. After this point, this once invincible fighter not only lost his title, but also a compass to guide his personal life. Now, I don't say this as a critic. It would scare the daylights out of me to anger Mike Tyson. But I use this analogy as a warning to all of us on how easy it is to fall, especially after we lose those who influence us. By the way, you may have seen that subtle verse, 2 Chronicles 24, 19, which says that even in God's wrath against Judah, he sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord. The one prophet we know of in this period is Joel. And as you read the words of this prophet, you may have noticed two main themes. One, God's rebuke of the people and the warning of coming judgment. But secondly, God's call for their repentance so that he could restore them. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 truly shows us the nature of God's heart here. Though he is justified in his anger and though he owes us nothing but judgment, what he wants is repentance and restoration. Verse 13 even shows us a phrase seen eight times in our Old Testaments, a description of God's truest character. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You may have also noticed as well the passage Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, which is found in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. God's promises here are bigger than Judah's restoration, in other words. They extend into the new covenant era that we now enjoy, when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Psalm 49 is another reminder about the subtle deceptions of wealth and the dangers of putting our hope in worldly goods rather than in God. There's nothing wrong with having wealth, but this psalm caused me to ask this question of my own, and it was this, what if the best of this world is the best I'm ever going to have? I also asked, what can the living God give me that money simply can't buy? Psalm 131 is a brief but peaceful psalm, isn't it? It conveys to us this simple childlike trust, like the kind a young child has when he or she is weaned from mother's milk and starts on the path of solid food. When little children have good parents, they don't have to try and trust them. It just comes naturally. And so the psalmist puts this telling word picture in front of us in relation to us and our gracious Father. <clears throat> we are little children 
called to trust. And maybe, just maybe, it will come more naturally over time. Every night before my wife and I go to sleep, we listen to an app called Lectio 365, where scriptures are read and prayers are prayed. It has become a great way for us to end our day and to trust that the Lord will watch over us when we sleep. Well, this psalm is often quoted in that and reminds us of the value of humility and trust in our good and powerful God to watch over us and care for us. And and this psalm is so short, and it's certainly one worth memorizing. But may we read it several times and just ask the Lord to give us, to instill the kind of trust that this psalm calls for into our hearts. Psalm 50 reminds me a little of all the mess we are reading in the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. One thing you will see in almost every account, whether the king is good or bad, is religiosity. On their worst day, one thing Israel and Judah were not missing was religion. They were deeply religious people, but religion without a dependent hope in the living God is worse than no religion at all. Watch for this pattern as you read the prophets, a pattern where God rebukes Israel and Judah for empty religion detached from real life. And one thing that Psalm 50 points out to us is the difference between the living God and all the other false gods out there. While other gods demand payment to be satisfied, our God does not. He indeed calls for sacrifice, but not because he's needy. In fact, we are the ones who, who are needy, we, we, and we can't pay off our God. We can't satisfy him with our little religious exercises. Instead, what pleases him is when we call on the Lord in the day of trouble. Then verse 15 says he will rescue us and we will honor him. As Christians, we, almost all of us, engage in some kind of liturgy. But we must always remember that our God owns everything. He needs nothing. That our liturgies don't pay off anything. They are simply honoring him. But the fact that he needs nothing doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy relationship. In fact, that's the great thing about God. He's not needy, and yet he longs for relationship with us. He doesn't need us, and yet he loves to rescue us when we admit our need for him. Speaking of that, as we move to the Sermon on the Mount, you may have seen a similarity between Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and some of the words in Psalm 50. So if you've ever been worried by Jesus' words here, I think the idea he conveys here has a lot to do with God's admonitions in Psalm 50. The idea in both passages seems to be this. You can do for God and yet not be aligned with God. Do you know the difference and do you know what's at stake here? That's a question I ask myself. In Matthew 6, you may have noticed the repetition of your father. It's mentioned several times. Your father sees, your father knows, your father feeds. In this segment where Jesus addresses doing good, praying, fasting, and worry, one theme prevails. Your heavenly father is intimately involved in your life. We are not our own. We are not sovereign over our lives. We should not chase after what others think of us. But if we belong to Jesus, we know this. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, who watches over us, who will never abandon us no matter what others might think of us. If we get that, if we understand that, we will be better able to deal with the issues in this chapter. This past week, I had a lot on my plate. 
I won't go into details, but I experienced physical, emotional, and spiritual fatigue. At one point during that, I realized how little I was praying about all that was going on. I was not going to my father, but I was doing everything in my own strength and my own wisdom, and I was not fun to be around. In a strange way, in all this tumult, I had forgotten about my heavenly Father. I had not applied Matthew 6 or Psalm 131. Nevertheless, he was with me. He was watching over me. He was waiting for me to come to him and in the spirit of Psalm 50 to cry out to him, which I did. And he was there. Well, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with the powerful illustration and application. Two houses, one built on sand and the other on rock. The difference is simple listening to what Jesus said, or listening and acting on what Jesus said. As I pondered that, I took away two personal questions regarding this sermon. One, where am I ignoring, excusing, or covering up my sin? And two, where am I not choosing to act on what I know to be true? One of life's most essential questions is posed by the disciples in Matthew 8, 27, after Jesus turns a raging sea into a pool of stillness, and they ask this, What kind of man is this? I can't think of too many other questions in life as essential and important as this one. Did you notice, by the way, in Matthew 10, verse 6, how Jesus tells the 12 to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, also mentioned in Matthew 15, 24, and referred to in Romans 9, 6? What is implied here is striking. Even in the people who possess a heritage of divine history and promises, there are those who are lost, who who don't trust in the God they know of. And we are reminded that knowing God has never been merely about biology or heritage or attending synagogue or church on a regular basis. It has always been about faith. In a modern-day setting, we might say going to church doesn't make you a Christian just like walking into a garage doesn't make you a car. Not that I want to be a car. But whether it was Israel of old or the church of new, it is not simply being near the things of God that make us children of God. It has always been and will always be faith that does that, as we see in Matthew 8, verse 10, verse 26, chapter 9, verse 2, and verse 22. After all the reading and commentary this week, I can't think of a better way to close than to take to heart Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 31, where he says, Don't fear this, but fear this. You might read over that passage again. As we think about that, I want to ask you, is is your fear rightly placed? Are you afraid of people, what they think or what they can do to you? or, Or do you have a healthy fear of God who has authority over this life and the life to come? If you are trusting in Christ, are you captured by the wonder that not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's consent and that you are worth more than many sparrows? Our father is good. He cares more about us than we even care about ourselves. He will never fail us. Let us hold to that until next week. And next week's readings include the book of Jonah and also the book of Amos, 2 Kings 13 and 14, 2 Chronicles 25, Psalms 53 and 55, and Matthew 11 through 15. And one quick tip here, we're going to read a lot of what we call the minor prophets, and next week, two of them, Jonah and Amos, these are prophets under 21. No, I'm kidding. They're just shorter prophetic books. But one thing I've started doing in this reading plan when it comes to minor prophets 
I sometimes like to read them all at once. Like next week, Amos is broken up into three days. I don't know if you want to try this, but I've started to do it. When it comes to a book that short, I like to read the whole thing and then make up for the other readings on another day because it just helps you get the flow of what the prophet is talking about. You don't have to do that, but not a bad idea when the when the prophetical books are shorter. So either way, I look forward to our gathering again next week and talking about these things. So have a great weekend and have a great week next week, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks for joining us on the 5-Day Reading Plan Podcast. 